This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program this 1st of March. We all know, of course, that March traditionally comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. Or at least, so I was taught back in elementary school. This is possibly more true in other locations than it is in sunny California, which does, throughout the year, tend to have a rather more mild climate, which I think is why, since the gold rush on, it's been a favorite of real estate speculators. Sunny California has always been a relatively easy sell to people digging out snow in Iowa. We do hope that some of you caught the occultation of Regulus. Yesterday, the moon actually passed in front of the bright star, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Unfortunately for this correspondent, yesterday, sunny California was cloudy California. So I guess we'll just have to hope for better luck next month when I I think they have a date with Destiny again. We'll look it up. We might well start out today's program with a congratulations to UC Davis, which apparently continues its run of being ranked first in the world in veterinary science. Evidently, it continues to be ranked second in the world in agriculture and forestry. I want to know who's first in agriculture. If you know, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I'm kind of glad to see UCD still ranked as number one, although I did have my doubts a few days back when I saw a piece from the (laughs) News and Information Service touting how Efforts at UCD, among other places, to identify beforehand all of the viruses in the world might enable us to stop pandemics. All I have to say is good luck with that. You know, we're often looking for good news on this program since the media seems to shovel so much bad at us. Here's a ray of sunshine. People in Russia are taking an interest in Lake Baikal as a resource to be preserved for future generations. Lake Baikal is truly a remarkable body of water. I believe it contains one-fifth of the world's fresh water that isn't frozen. I believe also it's the world's deepest lake, being a full mile deep. I did have the pleasure of visiting it in the last days of the Soviet Union. I was told by a Russian friend that if I went there, there would be no tourist infrastructure, and he was pretty much right. Luckily, that's been changing in recent years as uh, the Russians have realized what a potential jewel they have in the way of attracting tourists and hopefully eco-tourists. So they're, doing, they're making some efforts to clean it up. Environmentalists won a victory back in 2013 when they closed the Baikal Pulp and Paper Mill, a belching behemoth that had been dirtying the waters of that pure lake for decades. Evidently, in the past Decade, the number of tourists visiting Irkutsk, the main entry point to Baikal, just a few miles away from the lake, has tripled from a half million to over one and a half million last year. According to The Economist magazine, in order to serve the newcomers, hotels and campgrounds have popped up like mushrooms after a rain. Of course, wouldn't you know it, they also report that many of these lack systems to process the waste they generate, and so they dump it in the lake. Yeah, two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. 
At any rate, we wish all of the authorities in the UN and Russia well in doing their best to preserve this, this environmental masterpiece. Mr. Mellon suggests they start with taking these sewer pipes out of the lake. That's probably a good suggestion. In the second half of today's program, we're going to uh, resume our chat with uh, Radio Prioritics' good friend, researcher James DiEugenio. We'll be talking a bit about Robert Parry, the legendary investigative journalist, and a few more things. He will be in town this weekend, along with a lot of other friends that uh, I would call um, investigative journalists and non-journalists. More on that next week, perhaps. At some point, I'm probably going to excerpt from at least a review of the new book titled The Road Not Taken by Max Boot. There's a wonderful article about it in The New Yorker magazine. It is about Edward Lansdale, a man whose name has surfaced many times previously on this program. Lansdale was, back in the 1940s, an advertising executive who went to work for the Office of Strategic Services during World War II which later bumped him into the Central Intelligence Agency. He was considered to be a military colonel, but to date, I'm not sure whether he really was a colonel or that was an identity carved out for him by the Central Intelligence Agency, which has been known to do such things. The author of this book, Max Boot, seems to imagine that Lansdale, who failed rather miserably in his efforts to uh, play kingmaker in Vietnam. Not that he didn't play kingmaker, he did help President Diem assume that role. But as you probably know from your reading, if not from that previous discussions on this program, uh, things didn't, didn't work out so well in Vietnam uh, around that time. They also didn't work so well after that time as they had not worked so well before that time. Yet somehow, as I understand it, Max Boot thinks that if we'd just given Lansdale more leeway, he might have been able to set things right. Let's just say that we're skeptical of that perspective, which seems more in keeping with John Rambo, as played by Sylvester Stallone, posing the question in one of his movies, uh, are they going to let us win this time? You know, I, I do want to pause a moment and salute actor Sylvester Stallone for his ability to have turned himself into a right-wing militaristic icon when, back in the time of the actual Vietnam War, Sylvester, who evidently was none too keen to get involved in the conflict, my understanding is that Sylvester fled the United States to uh, go over to Switzerland where he hung out at a girls' boarding school and I don't know, I, f- I forget the capacity. Have to admit, in, in some ways, that was a more sensible choice than going into the jungle to fire AR-15s at the Viet Cong. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I'm sorry I did a digression into Sylvester Stallone. I, I apologize. But, you know, speaking of Lake Baikal, as you were a minute ago, uh, it does take me back to the time when I was a college student. There was still a Cold War going on at that time between the USSR and the US of A. And I remember uh, somewhere in Davis, one of the left-wing publications uh, had a piece (laughs) explaining patiently why it was that because the USSR was not operating under a capitalistic system, they had no problems with pollution. No, evidently in the socialist workers' paradise, they had all that figured out beforehand and therefore took precautions to make sure the environment was not damaged. I I am happy to report that I was not stupid enough to believe such nonsense. 
But alas, I, I fear that, that some were. The USSR did spend a fair amount of money in trying to convince the world that um, they were a good system, as, as did, as did uh, the USA, uh, you know, with the employment of such people as Edward Lansdale and implementation of such things as Operation Mockingbird to go around the world and seek favorable publicity. And if not find it, make it. I'm sure this made a lot of, I'm sure this made people like advertising executives, like Ed Lansdale, very attractive. And speaking of Russia and America, we highly recommend, dear listener, that you check out the article in The Atlantic titled The Plot Against America. The subheadline is Decades Before He Ran the Trump Campaign, Paul Manafort's pursuit of foreign cash and shady deals laid the groundwork for the corruption of Washington. Some of the items that are in this article have appeared uh, on this program. Uh, most of it is not. And uh, given that it's a really hard-hitting, comprehensive, and well-thought-out piece, uh, again, we, we recommend it to you highly. I suppose I should quote a bit from it. There are so many reasons why this is a worthy article. It outlines uh, some of the PR efforts that took place in Washington, how Manafort and Roger Stone and a few others basically built a public relations firm that really crossed lines that had not previously been crossed. They would uh, work to get you in power, and then once you're in power, they would lobby you. Until these guys thought of that innovation, uh, <laughs> generally it was felt in Washington that you should do one or the other. Like Roger Stone, Manafort's... Uh, uh, sometime partner in his endeavors uh, as they sought to control the young Republicans. Troll over the young Republicans, a political and social network for professionals aged eight, 18 to 40, was a genuine prize in those days, referring to 1977. Presidential hopefuls sought to harness the group. This was still the era of brokered presidential conventions, and young Republicans could descend in numbers sufficient to dominate state meetings that selected delegates. In 1964, the group's efforts had arguably secured Barry Goldwater the, night the GOP nomination. By the 70s, every Republican aspirant understood its potency. The attention paid by party elders yielded opportunities for young Republican leaders. Patronage flowed in their direction. To seize the organization was to come into possession of a baby Tammany. The article notes that Manafort's lobbying firm exuded the decadent spirit of the 1980s. The theme of one annual gathering was, excess is best. Guys like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort are the guys who push the buttons and work the levers and operate the Republican Party so that candidates can come forward and run for office. And then they, of course, manage their campaigns. In 1996, for example, Bob Dole's campaign... Uh, involved Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, at least up to the point when Roger Stone's involvement in swinging somehow got made public and he had to step down. Some of you are no doubt old enough to remember some of the columns that ran in the 80s in the Doonesbury comic strip uh, featuring PR firms that were working for various foreign dictators. Without a doubt, uh, the work of Paul Manafort uh, was was at least one of the models upon which this satire was built. Manafort became very chummy with some of his uh, foreign clients, including 
Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, Angolan guerrilla leader Jonas Savimbi, and Viktor Yanukovych of Ukraine, with whom Manafort would get very entwined. You know, actually, I don't want to go into this in too much detail. You should really read this yourself, my dear listener. It's perhaps worth noting that one of the oligarchs in Ukraine, Oleg Deripaska, evidently handed over a very large sum of money to Paul Manafort, which Manafort was apparently unable to either invest properly or pay back, or I don't know, somewhere, the way, somewhere along the way, the money kind of got lost, and Deripaska wanted it back. The article does speculate this is perhaps why Manafort was so intent upon gaining something he could bargain with, with Deripaska, and was thereby motivated to jump into the Trump presidential campaign. The article notes that Manafort reached out to Deripaska almost immediately upon securing a post with the Trump campaign, where, uh, if you're following the headlines, you know he uh, did a bunch of things that Robert Mueller finds very interesting. In fact, notes The Week magazine, former Trump campaign advisor Rick Gates has agreed to a plea deal with Special Counsel Robert Mueller in exchange for his testimony against Paul Manafort. Gates is expected to plead guilty to fraud-related charges connected to his consulting work with Manafort on behalf of pro-Russian politicians in Ukraine between 2006 and 2015. Both have been indicted for conspiracy and money laundering and are accused of hiding millions of dollars of Ukraine-based payments from federal authorities while acting as unregistered agents of the Ukrainian government. Gates, it should be noted, served as Manafort's top aide while he was managing Trump's presidential campaign. Although Manafort was fired from the campaign in August 2016, Gates remained on through Election Day and assisted Trump's inaugural committee. And speaking of Donald Trump, which sadly we seem unable to avoid completely, Data Milbank, writing in the Washington Post, noted recently that in any normal administration... Um, revelations of yet another sex scandal would be a Category 5 hurricane. It turns out that former Playboy model Karen McDougal had a nine-month affair with Donald Trump back in 2006, just months after his wife Melania gave birth to their son Barron. This is according to a handwritten account from the time obtained by The New Yorker. In 2016, McDougal sold the rights to her story for $150,000 to American Media Inc., the publisher of the National Enquirer. But the company, which is owned by longtime Trump friend David Pecker, never published it as a favor to the then presidential campaign. Sounding off on this in nymag.com, Jonathan Chait asked us to think about what these salacious stories are telling us saying that the wildest and most memorable allegations from the Steele dossier is that Russia has, co- has a compromising video of Trump and prostitutes in a Moscow hotel room. Chade asks, is that so far-fetched? Trump is clearly willing to pay for sex. McDougal said he offered her money after they slept together, and he later promised another porn star $10,000. Well, all I have to say is maybe... We know for sure he hasn't had consensual sex with any interns yet, as far as we know. So uh, I guess Republicans don't see any need to talk about impeachment. And if we're going to talk about Donald Trump Sr., we should probably talk a little bit about Donald Trump Jr. Evidently, Don Jr. went to India 
last week in order to sell luxury apartments in a Trump-branded development in a New Delhi suburb. His visit blurred what is supposed to be a stark line between business and politics. Ads in major newspapers reading, Trump is here. Are you invited? Traded on Trump Jr.'s status as the president's son, promising that home buyers who paid a $38,000 booking fee would get to have, quote, a conversation and dinner, unquote, with Trump Jr. Reportedly, the president's son was set to give a foreign policy speech at a dinner with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and in early comments to the press, said that business people in India were, quote, a little bit, unquote, more honest than those in China. So far, no comment from Xi Jinping. And speaking of China, here's a heck of a story. Reportedly, in President Trump's visit to Beijing last November, U.S. and Chinese officials scuffled over the briefcase carrying the U.S. nuclear codes. Axios.com reported this week that sources told the news site that Chinese security guards blocked the military aide carrying the so-called nuclear football, who must stay close to the president at all times, from following Trump into Beijing's Great Hall of the People. When Chief of Staff John Kelly rushed toward the aide, a Chinese security officer grabbed Kelly and Kelly shoved his hand away. A U.S. Secret Service agent then tackled the Chinese official to the ground. No Chinese official ever touched the briefcase itself, it's reported, and the incident was over quickly. Chinese officials apologized for what they said was a misunderstanding. U.S. officials were told to keep quiet about the incident. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Put in the magazine, it was a good week last week for progress after the World Health Organization predicted that polio will finally be eradicated once and for all in 2018. Last year, there were only 22 reported new cases of the disease, which paralyzed or killed millions of children in the 20th century and before. And yes, we do have to note to the anti-vaxxers out there that... This is being accomplished through vaccination. If polio is eliminated from the face of the earth, it will mark medicine's second such success. So far, the only disease ever eliminated was smallpox. It would be nice for us to get another notch on our belt, so to speak. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for national defense. After a think tank study found that three-quarters of Americans ages 17 to 24 are ineligible for military service because they're too fat, have criminal records, or didn't graduate high school. The study's co-authors said the image of hardy, scrappy Americans who can do anything is no longer accurate. And yes, we are hoping for more millennials who are hardy and scrappy. More on that to follow. And it was certainly an ugly week a few weeks back for women's rights with the news that Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte 
has been condemned by human rights activists in the wake of his giving a speech to 200 soldiers earlier this month, wherein he ordered troops to shoot female rebels, quote, in the vagina, unquote. Duterte then explained that this would render the women useless. The Philippine women's rights group, Gabriela, said the comments revealed Duterte to be a dangerous macho fascist. Speaking on behalf of the president, Duterte's spokesman said, quote, do not take the president seriously, unquote. Well, I think it's fair to say that most of us have never taken him very seriously, but as Pericles said in ancient Athens, just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. We haven't done a stat of the day in quite a while, so we should probably do a few. How about this one? Demand for avocados in the U.S. is so high that it threatens to outstrip supply. The average American now consumes seven pounds of avocado a year. In 1974, we only ate one pound a year. Of course, I don't know what you mean by we, Kimosabi. Having grown up with avocado trees on the property, we always did a little bit better than that. Thank goodness. Here's another stat I like. Apparently, Jeff Bezos reported that his income... Last year was $81,000. Yes, Bezos, acknowledged to be the world's richest man, evidently had himself paid that by way of salary. You know, it does seem pretty clear that some of these billionaires are finding ways to avoid taxation. All right, I got about three minutes left. Let's just do a couple of quick items here. Uh, unlike the good news regarding polio, the news regarding measles is bad. More than 21,000 people got the measles in Europe last year, which was more than quadruple the number the year before. At least 35 of them died. World Health Organization officials blamed the spike on parents rejecting or delaying jabs for their children because of the discredited but widespread belief that there is a link between childhood vaccinations and autism. In Italy, for example, the vaccination rate's 85%. The WHO says that 95% should be immunized to prevent outbreaks. And reportedly the NCAA has rejected an appeal by the University of Louisville, which stripped the school of its 2013 men's basketball championship. This is because they apparently provided players with strippers and prostitutes. This is the first time a school has been forced to forfeit a men's Division I basketball title. And along the way, Louisville must also forfeit 123 wins dating from 2012 to 2015 and pay the NCAA roughly $600,000 in fines. Of course, I do wonder about this forfeiting the game thing. Does anybody say at Clemson saying, hey, that 2012 loss we had to Louisville, we won that game. Of course, we do applaud the NCAA's efforts to try and clean up the corrupt cesspool that is sports in America. And no, we have no idea whether this NCAA policy may translate into a policy for the U.S. Congress to take a dim view of supplying people with strippers and prostitutes. Mr. Merlin points out, could theoretically cause you to be stripped of your title of president if such rules were enforced. And I guess for a final item, we'll, we'll delve into tech woes, a recurring theme on this program, a favorite of ours. Apparently the good people over in Latvia ran into some trouble with their technology. The country evidently digitized its entire system of health records, but last week a denial-of-service attack brought the entire 
country's health care system to a halt, leaving patients unable to fill prescriptions or book appointments. Of course, all I can say as a physician that anyone thinks that spending money on e-health systems is going to resolve your health problems is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Apparently, the Latvians are upset about the fact that even when the e-health system is up and running, this internet-based service is slow, and that slows down doctors. They're saying in Latvia that a lot of people were involved in creating this system, and every one of them needs to be tracked down and held accountable. Well, good luck with that. As far as I know, a Silicon Valley sales force managed to convince a lot of our legislators here in the U.S. of A. to push for similar measures, which also have not panned out as well as we might have hoped. But enough said about that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for our talk with James Diogenio to follow in our second half.